0: The Ukraine war is the biggest conflict Europe has seen since World War II, and it's the first to feature some of the newest weapons of the 21st century. But it's also made the United States military realize that it might not be up to the task of fighting a modern, conventional conflict. Lessons learned from Ukraine are changing everything, from the way America fights to even redesigning some of its most well-known combat systems. The Ukraine war will soon have been raging for two years as Russia continues to throw itself against the brick wall that is Ukraine. The once mighty former superpower, feared by the world and widely considered the second most powerful army on earth, is a shadow of its former self, and has proven beyond the shadow of a doubt that Russia is far more bark than bite. But that doesn't mean that this has been an easy war, and lessons learned here indicate that nobody, including the US military, is prepared for a conflict of this scale. The first lesson the US learned is how voraciously modern war consumes stocks of weapons and ammunition. Both Russia and Ukraine are expending thousands of shells a day, going through nearly a full year's worth of production in just one month of fighting. The war between Russia and Ukraine has become a numbers game for Russia. Long believed to be a capable modern military power, Russia is instead forced to resort to brute force to attempt to break Ukraine's military. Meanwhile, Ukraine is in a race against time, employing superior Western weapons and a whole lot of determination to dismantle the Russian military before it can in turn bleed Ukraine dry. The race for supplies is in full swing for both sides, and it turns out that neither side is prepared for the demands of a modern conventional war. Russia, which began with a 20 to 1 artillery advantage, is now only conducting between five and six times more shelling missions than Ukraine. For its part, Ukraine's firing about 6,000 rounds a day, but it says it needs 10,000 rounds to break Russian lines. At its peak, Russia was firing a whopping 60,000 rounds a day, and still didn't manage to break Ukrainian lines. German defense manufacturer Rheinmetall has estimated that Ukraine needs 1.5 million rounds every year. Nobody knows how many artillery shells the US has stockpiled away. That information is kept confidential in order to undermine enemy efforts. But we do know that the US has supplied over 2 million shells to Ukraine throughout the conflict. However, last year the US was only producing about 16,000 shells a month, and Europe wasn't doing much better. New legislation in both Europe and the US aims to dramatically increase production capabilities, but those are going to take time. The US is aiming to make as many as 24,000 shells by the end of 2023, and 100,000 shells a month by 2025. Combined with current European production of 300,000 shells a year at the start of 2023, the Allies are a long way off meeting Ukraine's needs. And when looking at these figures, one has to keep in mind that not all of these shells can simply be shipped off to Ukraine. Each nation has its own needs for shells to use in combat operations, training, or simply stockpiling away for the next time Russia decides to do something stupid. And every western nation is now expanding its reserve stocks in anticipation of another major conventional war, meaning in the best case scenario, Ukraine could probably receive about half of what's produced every year. This puts Ukraine in a rather precarious position as the war grinds on which is why the West has also been expanding access to alternative munitions, like cluster shells. These controversial munitions are especially effective against infantry in trenches, but widely denounced for their habit of leaving large amounts of unexploded ordnance behind that can pose a significant risk to friendly troops and civilians years after a conflict concludes. It should be noted though that Russia has been using cluster munitions since the start of the fighting, including even against civilian targets. We shouldn't allow ourselves to sink to Russia's level by any means, but one must remain sober and clear-eyed about Russia's historical willingness to resort to every imaginable depravity because they already have in just a year and a half of fighting. Whatever the official figure, the US clearly does not believe it has sufficient ammunition stockpiles, but even more importantly, it doesn't have the capability to produce more ammunition. Having deep reserves is nice, but artillery shells can age out after about 30 years. Even more importantly, a nation needs the ability to rapidly ramp up production of warfighting goods, and shells are amongst the most important goods. This is a critical deficiency that the US has been dealing with since the end of the Cold War, when the vast network of defense contractors were either driven out of business or consolidated into a handful of companies. Defense plants across the nation were shuttered, and very few of these were kept in any state of readiness to be reopened again in case of an emergency. On one hand, it makes sense- a military would rather have money for active capabilities, like new tanks, airplanes, and equipment, than for reserve capabilities, like keeping arms manufacturers open and its employees paid without actually providing anything. But the war in Ukraine has shown that defense investments cannot be just for active inventory. Modern war is absolutely brutal and consumes resources at a truly apocalyptic rate. Going forward, defense investments must include investing into the ability to quickly ramp up manufacturing at large scale. Currently, the US arms industry is basically a boutique shop that makes everything to order. Lockheed Martin only makes 156 F-35s a year, and only a part of those are for America's military, the rest are for its partners. Now when specifically talking about artillery shells, the US future needs come with a very specific caveat. The fighting in Ukraine is not truly an accurate representation of what a major conventional war with direct US involvement would look like. The Ukrainian war very quickly turned from combined arms maneuver war to something more closely resembling the vast trench networks of World War I. This is due to Ukraine's inexperience and lack of capabilities to conduct combined arms operations, and while Russia has access to all the right equipment for it, its military is a clown factory. The US military, to put it bluntly, is incredibly lethal. This is not an accident. The US has invested significant resources into learning from its past mistakes and developing the best war colleges in the world. Official US doctrine is to present an adversary with multiple domain challenges simultaneously in order to stress and break their ability to respond adequately to all or any of them. And it is very well equipped, and most importantly trained, to do just that. US aviators regularly train to coordinate with ground forces, while planners exercise at de-conflicting airspace for US ground-based air defenses so Russia can continue winning the gold medal at shooting down its own aircraft. The emphasis is on maneuver warfare in order to keep the enemy off guard and avoid the strategic quagmires of the past, and just about every weapon in the US arsenal is designed for these combined arms operations. A war between the US and Russia would not devolve into trench-to-trench fighting simply because American all-domain capabilities are significantly more advanced than Russia's. This means that there's a very low likelihood of a war devolving into the quagmire that Ukraine's Eastern Front finds itself in, but that chance isn't zero. As a French parliamentary member recently said, we believed we could do everything with airplanes, when referencing the West's lack of artillery shells. The US doesn't like losing conventional wars, but it really doesn't mind taking runner-up in unconventional ones apparently. This means that while the chance of war devolving to an artillery duel is extremely low, the US wishes to be prepared, and to do that it needs to dramatically increase both its reserve of shells and its capability to create new ones. But it's not just shells, because this war has been eating up other weapons at a prodigious rate as well. America has sent around 5,000 javelins to Ukraine since fighting began, and it's unknown how many javelin anti-tank missiles it has left in its own stockpiles like artillery shells, America's looking to ramp up production here as well. About 50,000 javelins are in service with the US and its allies and partners, which means in just a year and a half, 10% of the stockpile has been sent to an active war zone. In 20 years of fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, the US expended 5,000 javelins. So one year of conventional war has expended as many javelins as the US needed in 20 years. Another lesson the US has learned from the war in Ukraine is that the next major war America fights may not be as permissive an environment to its high-tech weapons as it would like. When Russia launched its initial invasion of Ukraine, it waged a largely unreported but extremely effective electronic war against its victim. Russian electronic warfare platforms completely overwhelmed Ukraine's ability to coordinate and communicate, but they worked a little too well and, in typical Russian fashion, affected Russia's own abilities to the point it had to significantly curtail the use of electronic warfare. The initial expertise in EW was quickly diminished though as Ukraine regained its balance and Russia didn't have the upper hand anymore. What would follow is a conflict where Russia's significant EW capabilities were poorly used, though that doesn't mean that they haven't still had a significant effect. One of the first major aid packages from the US to Ukraine was thousands of secure radios to avoid the worst effects of Russian electronic warfare and help better coordinate the troops on the ground. The introduction of HIMARS was revolutionary, single-handedly making the famous fall counteroffensive of 2022 a stunning success. HIMARS uses GPS-assisted precision munitions, but as the war wore on, its effectiveness has been increasingly limited. Today, Russia is interfering with a large number of HIMARS strikes against its most sensitive targets, though it seems relatively unable to protect frontline troops from its devastating precision effects. Around May of this year, it became clear that Russia was doing a decent job of interfering with HIMARS strikes. By jamming the GPS signal the rocket uses, its precision was significantly reduced. This in turn prompted the US to rush to develop new software aimed at circumventing Russian jamming, and Ukraine and the US made striking at Russian Zytel R-330ZH jamming stations a top priority. These mobile jamming units, however, can be difficult to identify and quickly eliminate Though a leak from the Pentagon showed that US officials were strongly pushing for Russian jamming units to become priority targets over pretty much anything else. Ukraine promptly deployed special forces behind enemy lines, with the sole purpose of hunting these down and destroying them. The jammers weren't just causing issues for HIMARS batteries, but for other Western-supplied precision weapons like Dams and precision artillery shells. The developments in Ukraine have shown how vulnerable American smart weapons can be in a near-peer conflict and prompted both the US and Britain to work together to develop new ways of protecting their systems from jamming, or eliminating adversary jamming systems. Forty years ago, early GPS units were credited with the coalition's stunning success on the ground against Iraqi forces. It wasn't just the might of western tanks and close air support, it was the ability to navigate with extreme degrees of precision across a featureless desert. The Iraqis thought it would be impossible to move large forces in this way and thus set up their defenses toward major roads only to be hit in the flanks by surprise attacks from the deserts. The importance of GPS has only increased since then, but so have incidents of GPS jamming and spoofing. From Ukraine to the Middle East and the South China Sea, GPS jamming and spoofing has affected everything from militaries to civilian traffic. Base systems have developed a digital GPS anti-jamming receiver, which is quickly proliferating across Western militaries, but the US has banked on ENCODE GPS tech to make its weapons resilient to jamming. Basically, GPS 3.0, EMCODE, utilizes a new type of signal to make it much more difficult for GPS signals to be spoofed or completely jammed. It will be transmitted in the same frequency ranges as old GPS, but users will only need part of the signal to anonymously calculate their position. GPS 3 satellites will also be able to broadcast spot coverage and regional coverage, making it extremely difficult to disrupt an incoming signal. The war in Ukraine has accelerated the US's need to purchase anti-jamming equipment and jam-resistant add-ons in its arsenal, as well as the deployment of M-code. Unfortunately, satellite launches are significantly behind schedule, and the US won't be able to make full use of its new GPS tech for years to come. The US has been carefully analyzing Russia's failures in Ukraine, an exhausting job for whoever got it, and two major points of failure have become clear. The first is a lack of battlefield command and control, with Russian military leadership often far in the rear or simply not having the tools or capabilities to coordinate a large number of troop formations at once. The second major failure is a lack of initiative by Russian troops, and this is a result of two things- low morale and poor doctrine. The US prides itself on having a force that is extremely resilient to command disruption. Junior leaders at every level are encouraged to act on their own initiative creating a military that is highly resistant to the type of decapitation strikes Ukraine is delivering every other day. Russia on the other hand is the opposite, with its military entrenched in old Soviet doctrine of a heavy top-down command structure. Troops do as the higher command tells them to, and if higher command doesn't exist anymore because the general used his cell phone to call home and then Ukraine responded with a storm shadow strike, then they do nothing. It's never been clearer to the US that it must maintain its competitive advantage by fostering the type of carpe diem attitude that's been its hallmark since World War I. Renewed focus on NCO and junior leader training attempts to insulate US command chains from decapitation strikes. And with the proliferation of electronic warfare and radio jamming, US units must be able to operate on their own while being out of contact for prolonged periods of time. This means more individual and junior leader training and to counter the same morale problem that's plaguing the Russian military, the daily allotment of HUAs in the U.S. military has been increased threefold. The Ukrainian war has shown that U.S. combat vehicle design might be outdated as well, though, and it's been scrambling to correct that mistake. The greatest killer of tanks in Ukraine has been the anti tank missile, with a combination of landmines and artillery being a close second. Tank on tank combat accounts for only a fraction of total tank kills as the anti-tank guided missile has proven it is the king of killing tanks, especially if you have awful armor doctrine like Russia and don't properly support them with dismounted infantry. Most anti-tank missiles work by attacking the thin top armor of a tank, often penetrating the turret, and delivering a shaped rod of molten metal which punches into the tank and does very unkind things to any crew in the way. The US has taken note of the way Russian tanks have been savaged by ATGMs, and now believes that it's time for some significant redesign of the legendary Abrams tank. It might look like America's taking a page from Russia's book, except it was the US who originally pioneered the concept of a remotely controlled turret. This is what the Abrams might be bringing to the table in its next iteration, as it moves its vulnerable crew out of the turret and into an armored capsule at the front of the tank. All the way back in 1980, the US experimented with the concept. But because the height of technology at the time was the Sony Walkman, it was deemed too immature a concept to risk bringing to the battlefields of Eastern Europe. Thus, the US opted for traditional turrets on top of the Abrams. But that's changing, as the US looks at the use of a remote-controlled turret once more. This would make the crew safer, even from an anti-tank missile as it moves them out of the likely path of penetration. It also means the US will have to adopt an auto loader. however, something that it hasn't wanted to do so far. But in the end, America might not have a choice, because even though the ATGM protective measures are becoming increasingly more advanced, the fact of the matter is that the Abrams tank is already too fat for its own good. Then studies from Ukraine show that to be survivable, the tank as it is is going to have to put on even more pounds. Modern Abrams tanks are already too heavy for safe transport on many different types of vehicles, and far too heavy to safely cross most bridges. Adding more weight for more protective measures simply isn't an option, but the Abrams might have to take on the weight of additional countermeasures by adopting a remote-controlled turret. Such a turret could be made much smaller than a traditional turret, and be less well-armored as there's no crew inside to protect. This would allow the tank to shed tons of pounds and come down to something a bit more manageable for U.S. logisticians. Tank manufacturer General Dynamics already revealed its Abrams X program back in March 2023, featuring a remote-controlled turret that could be the future of the legendary Abrams. Ukraine has delivered one final lesson to the U.S. military, and it's one with a significance so important that the U.S. has taken unprecedented action to immediately meet the challenge. It's estimated that Ukraine uses up to 10,000 drones a month, This includes drones lost to anti-drone weapons and jamming, as well as suicide drones used to deliver explosive love letters to the Russian Ministry of Defense in Moscow. On September 20th, Ukraine launched the largest drone attack in history, using over 100 drones to attack Russian defenses and facilities in Crimea. The attack was a stunning success, with the drones drawing the attention of Russian air defenses and forcing them to expend their missiles. The attritable swarm then continued onto its various targets and opened up the skies for Neptune missiles to strike at the Russian naval HQ. From attriting enemy air defenses to recon and spotting for artillery, drones are the it weapon of the war, and the US has realized just how critical these sometimes very small weapons are for fighting a modern conflict. Despite being completely overmatched in every category, Ukraine's advantage in drones has been one of its biggest saving graces, and it's used that overmatch to make life absolutely miserable for the Russians. Aircraft and radar systems worth hundreds of millions of dollars have been destroyed or severely damaged by thousand-dollar drones, and that's an economic exchange that no country can hope to win. The US has prioritized anti-drone weapons across the entire military. In any future conflict, it's inevitable that enemy agents will strike far behind the front lines using disposable drones. The B-2 bomber is the world's second most capable bomber now that its successor the B-21 is operational, but it can easily be destroyed by a three-ship flight of a $200 DJI drone equipped with explosives and launched from close to its flight line. Everything from multi-million dollar aircraft and systems, to civilian infrastructure is vulnerable to drone attacks, and point-drone defense weapons are a critical need for the American military. But traditional point-defense weapons use expensive interceptors, and that's simply not an option. Again, swapping million-dollar Patriot missiles for $1,000 drones is a quick way to lose a war. Instead, the US is turning to directed energy weapons, and it's already fielding the most powerful battlefield lasers in the world with more to come. But the drone itself is a weapon supremely useful not just to overmatched powers like Ukraine, but even the world's most powerful military. In a stunning announcement, the US Department of Defense announced the Replicator Program, aimed at producing and fielding quote, thousands upon thousands, end quote, of drones in the US military by 2025. That's just two years, and the US is expecting to have massive drone swarms not just in inventory but in active use. Drone swarms are supremely useful. As Ukraine has proven, and the US has named a specific adversary for its future drones- China. Citing China's growing number superiority in the Pacific, the DoD is turning to vast swarms of drones to level the playing field, and then tip it in its advantage. These drones will do everything from recon to saturating enemy defenses, and even delivering suicide attacks. And Replicator aims to have vast quantities of expendable drones for use in both sky and sea. America is an apt pupil of war and the Ukraine war has been a masterclass on the challenges of future combat and how ill-prepared in places the US and its allies have been. However, the advantage of the United States military over any potential adversary is its dedication to professional military education with the best war colleges in the world where US service members attend class side by side with allies and partners from around the world. If the US is going to keep its competitive advantage though, it's got to keep evolving and avoid letting any amount of hubris stagnate its military culture. Now go check out why Putin's invasion of Ukraine is a failure, or click this other video instead. June 11, 1969, Baria Ria City, Vung Tau Province, Vietnam. A newbie tunnel rat arrived at the base to a scene of utter destruction. Just days earlier a platoon was hit by an M16 mine, aka the Jumping Jack. It got that name for the way it jumped in the air when stepped on. It killed three men and injured 24 others. Not long after the hidden enemy laid an anti-personnel mine, a personnel carrier hit that mine. It was the first time that the unseasoned tunnel rat saw a dead body. It was chaos, each and every day. He had to learn fast. The number one tunnel rat, nicknamed Yogi, was hit twice by mines. Bits were hanging off him as he told the newbie what he had to do next. This was not a job for the faint of heart, but someone had to do it. That story is true, it happened to a combat engineer in the Australian Army. He took on one of the hardest and scariest roles in the war, that of a tunnel rat. We'll get back to his story, but first, let's talk about the job. Prior to the Americans going to war with the Viet Cong, the French fought the Viet Minh from 1946 to 1954. During that time, the Viet Minh learned a thing or two about fighting a superpower. To beat someone far more powerful than yourself, you had to resort to guerrilla tactics. One of those tactics was keeping below ground, and so the Viet Minh got to work building a massive complex of tunnels. When the Americans arrived in 1955, the tunnels were already vast, but it was the Viet Cong that really made them a feat of engineering. During the Vietnam War, or the American War to the Vietnamese, the Viet Cong used those tunnels for all kinds of things. While the opening to the tunnels was small, they might lead to a complex system of tunnels that would lead to large underground spaces. It was within these spaces that the Viet Cong would hide, eat, sleep, and machinate attacks on their enemy. The tunnels served as headquarters, hospitals, barracks, and storage facilities. Since they had ventilation systems, it was possible to stay down there for a prolonged period of time. So we're not so much talking about men burrowing like rabbits, but men living in a subterranean world. These worlds provided safety from the hostiles. Like snakes, the men would come out of them at night, lay traps for the enemy, and sneak back into the tunnel. And that's how so many American and Australian soldiers lost their lives to mine-laying soldiers that were rarely seen above ground. It was actually an Australian combat engineering unit, the Three Field Force, that were the first tunnel rats. The Americans later joined them, but we don't imagine guys were queuing up for the job. Just imagine it. They find the entrance, but have no idea where the tunnel will lead or who they will encounter down there. That wasn't the only threat of humans to worry about, too. Vietnam is in the tropics, and the tropics are home to all kinds of dangerous creatures. Have you ever seen a Vietnamese giant centipede? Those fast-moving, prehistoric-looking creatures deliver one of the most painful insect bites known to man. And guess what? They too like to hide in tunnels. Then there were the snakes, the highly venomous and deadly banded crate, the malignant pit viper, the king cobra, and a whole host of other badass snakes that can spoil a person's day. The soldiers had to deal with ants' nests, annoying bats, rats carrying the bubonic plague, as well as spiders that weren't generally a threat to life, but could make life painful So you can imagine that going into one of those tunnels was about as frightening as getting into Ted Bundy's Volkswagen Beetle, but they had to do it, lest more men get blown to bits by these damned jumping jack mines. If the men can infiltrate the tunnels, they might not only kill a few of the enemy, but they would usually come across a stash of mines, grenades, and guns. There was another problem concerning arms. The tunnels were small, and so that meant that the tunnel rats couldn't take larger guns down them. They were usually only equipped with an M1911 pistol or an M1917 revolver. They'd also have a flashlight, a knife, and usually some explosives so they could blow up whatever they found down there. You can just picture it. A man crawling through the darkness, his flashlight in one hand, and his pistol in the other. He crawls and crawls, and then he sees the enemy. He shoots, and then all he can hear is ringing in his ears. He's blinded by the flash and deafened by the noise, then the earth above his head starts to fall. He needs to get out fast. What he doesn't know is that the Viet Cong have something special for him, poisonous gas. And this tunnel rat didn't choose the gas mask option because the last time he wore one he could barely see. If the gas doesn't get him, the flood will. The Viet Cong designed this particular tunnel with a flooding feature if it should ever be infiltrated. Other times the tunnel might just collapse, which wasn't a design feature but a case of poor construction. You'd have to be crazy to do this job. You also had to be short. Imagine a hulk of a man with quite the belly trying to navigate around a tunnel. Soldiers that were picked for the job were usually not taller than 165 centimeters. It was the same years later when the US Marine Corps and British Royal Marines fought in the Afghanistan war. Yeah, tunnel rats weren't only a thing in Vietnam, but let's stay with Vietnam for now and go back to the Australian soldier. He was trained at the Australian Army's School of Military Engineering. He actually thought that this line of study would mean he'd be facing less combat and doing more engineering. He was wrong. He was being trained to become a tunnel rat. That meant learning about things such as mine detection, disarming booby traps, safely blowing stuff up, and learning how to get through tunnels. When he arrived in Vietnam, he walked into chaos. As we said, one of the first things he saw was the aftermath of a soldier stepping on a jumping jack mine. Three bodies were outfitted with body bags, and after that two dozen men were wounded. He said those M-16 mines were everywhere, and it was part of his job to find them. What the Viet Cong did was store them in the tunnels and then lay them at night. So each day was a new day, and there was always a possibility of new mines lying around. That's why the tunnel rat had such an important job find where the mines were stored, and blow up the tunnel, and then no more mines. When he started the job, he worked as a tunnel rat number two. He worked in a pair with tunnel rat number one, and when six months was up, he became number one and he was joined by a newbie. He hadn't been a number two for long when he heard that a number one tunnel rat named Yogi had stood on a mine. Yogi was alive, but as you can imagine, he wasn't looking too well. In fact, only three Australians that stood on mines made it back home with their legs and lives intact. Yogi was one of them. He was lucky. The fatality rate in his unit was 33%. That's one reason why going into tunnels was not a prospect most soldiers liked. The Americans wanted to destroy the tunnels not from the inside, but from the outside. If you dropped enough bombs on suspected tunnels, then they would cave in and anyone inside would suffocate. If you sprayed poisonous gases into them, the Viet Cong would die. You could also try and flood the area where the tunnels were, and by doing that, drown the enemy. The problem was that these efforts didn't always result in success. The reason for that was the fact that the Viet Cong made more impressive tunnels. They made them blast proof, flood proof, and provided extra ventilation so the gases weren't effective. They also made them in a zigzag shape to mitigate the effect of an explosion. This is why the tunnel rat was indispensable. Those guys were the only thing that really worked. Believe it or not, most American soldiers were not chosen to do this job, but actually volunteered. Most soldiers thought you'd have to be out of your mind to do the work. The centipedes and the snakes were one thing, but suffocation in a collapsed tunnel was something from a nightmare. So why did they volunteer? One soldier back then said it was sometimes a macho thing. Soldiers did it to show others just how tough they were. He said that many tunnel rats had had problematic lives back home in the US, so they wanted to show that they could be useful. And useful they were, as well as brave. One tunnel rat named C.W. Bowman said that his fellow soldiers thought he was a maniac doing the job. He said they took bets each time he went into a tunnel and some men betted that he would die. Some men almost did, and this would become a weakness for the US military. We'll get around to that soon. Let's first take you through a mission. You shoot first and ask questions later. That was the mantra of the tunnel rat. Anything they came across, they shot at. They would usually fire only three bullets and then reload. The reason for this was the enemy wouldn't know how many bullets they had in the chamber. Let's say the mission was successful, and that the tunnel rat took out the enemy and discovered what was hidden down there. What would they find? On one mission, the tunnel was around 120 feet. At the end of the tunnel, the rat found places where men cooked and slept. As for items, he discovered eight rifle grenades, 40 pounds of salt, and 6,000 pounds of rice, all of which was destroyed. On another mission, the tunnel rats found cameras, films, and printing presses, as well as weapons and ammunition. There was still a problem though, and that was the fact that even if the tunnel rats were successful, the Americans still had a problem winning the war. You can take out the tunnel, but there will always be more. This is a quote from Ho Chi Minh, the president of North Vietnam. You can kill ten of our men for every one we kill of yours, but even at those odds you will lose and we will win. Take for instance the use of booby traps, horrific things that killed around 11% of American soldiers during the war. Sometimes the Viet Cong would put a punji stake trap in a larger part of the tunnel. These were holes filled with sharpened bamboo that would be covered with branches and leaves. When a soldier stood on the trap, the spikes would impale him, and worse, the spikes might have been daubed with poison or feces. The soldier would then scream out, but he wouldn't die. This was the point, because the Viet Cong wanted more men to go down into the tunnel. Not only were there often more traps down there, but even if there weren't, pulling an injured man off sharp sticks and dragging him out through the tunnel was very time consuming. The Viet Cong would later say that the Americans spent so much time and energy rescuing their injured comrades that they had lots of time to regroup and plan what they were going to do next. The sheer horror of these traps were also very bad for morale. This is what Ho Chi Minh was referring to when he said the Americans would not be victorious. He was right too. There were other kinds of traps. A tunnel rat might have hit a tripwire while crawling and then the tunnel would have collapsed on him. There's a story of a tunnel rat that popped his head out of one entrance and that triggered a spear that went through his neck. At other times, the Viet Cong made traps like something you might have seen in an Indiana Jones movie. A man could hit a tripwire in a tunnel and then a concrete ball studded with spikes would come flying at him. A lieutenant named Jack Flower said he experienced a totally different kind of trap. His comrade went into a tunnel and that man triggered a tripwire. After that, a box full of scorpions rained down on him. Snakes were also used. Sometimes the Viet Cong would place them in bamboo and tie them to the roof of the tunnel. When a soldier hit the bamboo, the snake would pop out and bite the man in his face. They scared the hell out of the soldiers, some of whom called them three-step snakes, because after you were bitten you only had three steps before you died. That might be a bit of an exaggeration, but you can imagine being stuck in a dark tunnel with scorpions and snakes flowers went into over 100 tunnels. He later said this about the expeditions, In these tunnels your adrenaline was pumping like a river. I swear I could hear my heart beating. You'd feel your way along for booby traps. It got so you could sense them. Same for the VC. You could smell another human being in the tunnel. You knew he was waiting for you in the dark. All of these horrors that the Viet Cong created instilled so much fear in the men that volunteering to be a tunnel rat wasn't exactly on every soldier's mind, but someone had to do it. They had to do it for the team, so to speak. This is what one American said about hiding in tunnels. We often wondered how things happened in the night, and we never saw what was going on. Guys getting their throats cut. Nobody ever knew where these guys were coming from. They had to go down every tunnel they could find, otherwise strange things happened during the night. It created tremendous psychological stress not knowing where the enemy was, so sending down tunnel rats was some peace of mind. There were successful tunnel campaigns, such as Operation Crimp and Operation Cedar Falls, but in the end, the Viet Cong proved to be more resilient. While the American soldiers were literally having nervous breakdowns going into the tunnels, the Vietnamese soldiers were at home in them. If the tunnels were destroyed, they just built more of them. The Americans had the task of Sisyphus, pushing the giant rock up the slope for eternity. As for the fate of the tunnel rats, there isn't any data on how many of them died. But it's thought that most of them succumbed during those horrific explorations of the Vietnamese subterrain. Out of 100 or so tunnel rats in the American army, only 12 of them lived to tell the tale of those tunnels back on American soil. One of those men was Jack Flowers. He later said, why did we do it? I wasn't a tough guy. Nobody who knows me would ever suspect I could do what the tunnel rats did. I'd never want a son of mine to have to do it. Thank God he said that these days men don't have to do what he did. Now, you should watch this video, The Insanely Crazy Story of a Tiny Soldier, or have a look at this, Mad Jack, A Real-Life World War II Madman.